We are in a series we're calling What's Next with an exclamation point and not with a question mark because we believe that God has spoken about the future and he has not stuttered. He's been very clear. We understand ourselves to be in a church age, an age that began at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church of Jesus Christ was born. And we believe for various reasons as we look at the current events of the world stage that we could be near the end of this church age. I don't have a date for the rapture return of Christ. The Bible doesn't give me one, but I know the seasons, the signs of the seasons, the economic common union in Europe shrinking down to a size, toward a size that Revelation predicts, anti-Semitism on the rise around the world, uh, the technology to have a chip under one's skin as human beings that gives a GPS reading of wherever we are on earth and stores all of our bank information. I see the signs of the times, and maybe the church age is going to end relatively soon, no prophetic uh, Bible verses of prophecy nature have to be fulfilled before Christ could come. In the next event after the church age, which is the rapture of the church, that twinkling of an eye event when Christ comes to earth's atmosphere, resurrects the graves of those who died in Christ during the church age, resurrects and glorifies their bodies, and then those of us who are alive and remain at this coming of the Lord, the rapture return of Christ, will be caught up, rapturio at Latin, to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Church age, rapture of the church, kicks off in heaven an evaluation process of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment seat of Christ, for seven years, all the believers of the church age will be judged, evaluated, as to whether our good works are rewardable or unrewardable. We've covered that in sermon past. Meanwhile, in the seven years of Bema judgment in heaven for church age believers on earth is an unprecedented outpouring of God's wrath and righteous judgment against sin in the tribulation. Seven years, literal years of tribulation. The seven years of tribulation will end, Jesus said in Matthew 24, if they weren't to end, no one would live. But they will end with the second coming return of Christ. I'm going to preach a message today on the second coming return of Christ. But let me be crystal clear. The second coming return of Christ is different than the rapture return of Christ. They're two different returns. The rapture return of Christ is before the tribulation. The second coming return of Christ is before the kingdom the thousand-year millennial kingdom. So what we're talking about this morning is what some scriptures teach us about the second coming return of Christ. And in, in teaching this to you, I'm going to contrast what the Bible says about the second coming return of Jesus with what the Bible says about the rapture return of Jesus. They're not equal, not to be mixed up. There's seven years of tribulation on earth between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. So please, let's get this straight together. You know, we can be very thankful for Scripture, and we can be very thankful for the historical events that God brought to pass so we have a, a historical, accurate account of these events in Scripture. And one of the things that I'm especially grateful for is that after Jesus Christ was crucified, after he was resurrected from the dead, 40 days on earth appearing as a resurrected Savior, alive from the dead, after 40 days of that ministry, he was caught up in the ascension event to be with his father, and he's been seated at his father's right hand ever since that ascension event. And one thing I'm especially thankful for this morning is that God had angels present at the ascension of his son back to heaven, and they spoke and explained and gave commentary to the human eyewitnesses to Christ's ascension. 
And we have a record of that whole event as found in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And after he had said these things, well, what things had he said? Well, if you look, he said, when asked in verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it that this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's very interesting that if Jesus didn't believe there'll be a literal kingdom on earth, this is the time to correct them. Oh, no, you've got it wrong. Jesus could have said, the kingdom, only kingdom is going to be in your hearts. Jesus didn't say that. They asked, as a Jewish question, when are you going to restore the literal thousand-year kingdom of God on earth that's going to particularly be focused on the Jewish people who are converted? And Jesus said, yeah, that's coming, but I, you know what? This is what he said. And so when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He, Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus said, yeah, the kingdom's going to come, and it's not just going to be in your hearts. It's going to be on earth with the King Jesus, me. But you don't know the time of it, and you're not supposed to know the time of it. That's what Jesus said. He goes on in verse 8, a very famous verse. But Jesus speaking, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, that birthed the church. But you shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, so you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that's the program right now of uh, the Lord. The church, the church age in which we live is to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's our job as the church. And we're going to have power from the Holy Spirit to do it. And verse 9 after he, Jesus, had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received them out of their sight. Think about that. And as they were gazing intently into the sky for a while, this is what they looked like. I'm not exaggerating. That's what they looked like. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing, that's angels, stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I've always thought that was a funny question. Of course they'd be looking up into the sky. But the angels wanted to get their attention off the sky to tell them something about the earth, something about their jobs on earth. 11. And they said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's helpful. That's very helpful. So how exactly did those disciples see our Lord and Savior ascend from earth back to heaven? How did they see that? What did they see? Because however he went up from earth, the angel said, he's coming in that same manner back to earth. So how did they see him go back to heaven? Literally, bodily, visibly, personally, historically, slowly. Those are the same ways, the angel said so, that he's coming back to earth. Literally, bodily, visibly, personally, historically, and slowly. Let's talk about these. Jesus Christ left earth 
and will come back to earth literally. That is not some imagery, not some vision, not some symbolism, not just an idea, not just an ideal, literally. Second, Jesus Christ left earth bodily, and he will return to earth in the second coming return. He will return bodily, in a body, not just a spirit, and certainly not unrecognizable. Third, when he left to go back to heaven, he left visibly. And when he comes back the second time to earth, he will come back visibly. Not in some invisible manner, not unwitnessed or unnoticed. That's not all. Jesus went back to heaven personally, and he will return to earth personally. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send a delegate. He brings he comes back himself. When he went back to the Father's right hand in the ascension, it involved a cloud. It was a real day. It had weather, cloudy conditions. When he comes back, it'll be a real day on the calendar with that day's weather. He went back to heaven historically and actually. That is, he went back to heaven on a specific date. He will return to earth on a specific date unknown to us. He left earth to go back to heaven from a specific place. He's going to return to earth to a specific place, and the New Testament tells us where that is. It's the Mount of Olives, east side of Jerusalem. When he went back to his father, it was not a dream, it was not a fable. It was not a fairy tale and it was not a myth. And when he comes back the second time, it will also not be any of those things. It'll be actual and historical. Won't that be something? <laughs> so don't miss this. There are two installments of Jesus Christ's return. There is a rapture installment that ends the church age and begins the tribulation seven years, and the second installment of our Lord and Savior's return to earth is the second coming. The second coming does not equal the rapture. The rapture does not equal the second coming. There's seven years of tribulation on earth separating the two returns. There are two returns of Jesus, not one. And so in the minutes we have, I want to consider with you the second coming. We're not looking at the rapture except as a contrast when we do this study. Just to be clear, I want to contrast the rapture with the second coming really quickly. The rapture removes all believers. The second coming reveals Christ. The rapture is a time when all the believers are caught up in the air. The second coming of Christ is when the one and only Lord and Savior descends to earth. The rapture, at that point, Christ claims the bride. The second coming, Christ returns with his bride. At the rapture, it starts seven years of tribulation. At the second coming, it starts a thousand years of Christ's kingdom on earth. They're different. The rapture is an imminent event. It could happen at any time. There's no prophecy to be fulfilled before Christ comes back in his rapture return. But the second coming of Christ is not imminent in this sense. You have a rapture, then you know what's going on. You know there's seven years of uh, tribulation, and you know then the second coming. You have a sense in which the second coming is coming where you don't have a sense 
when the rapture's coming. This is an imminent event, could happen at any moment before this service dismisses. The second coming awaits the rapture and seven years of tribulation before the second coming will take place. The rapture brings a message of comfort. The second coming of Christ brings a message of judgment, not comfort. The rapture is an event that most everybody on earth is going to miss. Happens in the twinkling of an eye. The only time people on earth who didn't know Jesus as Savior are left Notice the rapture happened is when you don't pay your mortgage, when you don't show up at school, when you don't put out your garbage anymore, when the unbelievers take note that you're gone. They didn't read about your going in the obituaries. Largely, the rapture return of Christ will be unnoticed by the average unbelieving bear. The second coming of Christ will be noticed by every human person on earth. No one will miss the fact that King Jesus has come back. No one. That's because the rapture event is the twinkling of an eye. It's super fast. The second coming event, Jesus Christ will descend from heaven to take his rightful throne of David on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it will be super slow so the world can see. And Fox News can cover it. And CNN can cover it. And MSNBC can cover it. He'll descend so slowly in the second coming event that the world will know he's come back. The rapture has only to do with the church. The second coming has to do with the world. The rapture is a biblical mystery. It was not previously revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. But the second coming, the second coming is predicted by many Old Testament scriptures and by many New Testament scriptures. The second coming is not a biblical mystery. God has revealed truth about the second coming in the whole Bible. The rapture is a time when believers in Jesus Christ are lifted up and out to be evaluated to see if our good works are rewardable or unrewardable. The second coming of Christ is a time when Jesus' king sets up his kingdom and judges the unconverted of the planet. At the rapture, creation remains unchanged, still under the curse of sin. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, creation will be healed Meat-eating animals will stop eating meat and eat plants like they did before the fall in Eden. That's how lions will lie down with lambs in the thousand-year kingdom. Creation's curse will be reversed, healed. There'll be a renaissance of human creation to show people who doubt that God can fix what sin messed up. They'll see creation healed. But rapture leaves creation unhealed. The rapture leaves God's covenants with Israel yet to be fulfilled. 
But the second coming event brings the complete fulfillment of all of God's covenants with Israel. When Jesus comes a second time, Israel will get every square inch of real estate that the Old Testament predicts they will have in a covenant. And let's stop trading land now for a, a, a moniker of a temporary peace in the Middle East. It won't work. And so the rapture leaves the covenantal promises to Israel unfulfilled, not forever, because the second coming of Christ fulfills all of the covenantal promises of God to the nation of Israel, all of them in the kingdom. The rapture leaves evil operating on earth. The second coming brings on the time of God's aggressive suppression and judging of evil. The rapture takes place before the day of wrath. The second coming takes place to kick off a time of wrath. The rapture affects only believers. The second coming affects everyone. The rapture has the Lord is at hand, Philippians 4, 5. The second coming is the kingdom is at hand, Jesus teaching in Matthew 24, verse 24. At the rapture of the church, we should expect to be taken to be with Christ, but at the second coming, Israel expects to be taken into the kingdom. The rapture, we expect to go to be with Jesus in heaven. The second coming, the Jews go into the thousand-year kingdom on earth. These are different returns. Very, very different returns. And it makes you wonder, as a Bible student, how do Christians, born-again Christians, mess this up? How do born-again Christians think the rapture equals the second coming? How do they think the second coming equals the rapture? How do they just mix all these prophecies together? How? I'll give you three reasons how. First, true Christians make error one calling Israel the church and calling church Israel. These are not the same. God provides salvation through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross for believing Gentiles and believing Jews. And in this church age, the church can be made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. But fundamentally, in the prophetic plan of God, there's a difference between the church and Israel. When some people say, when Israel crucified Jesus, they were written off by God, and all the covenantal promises of the Old Testament made to the Jews are now for the church. I don't believe that for one minute. Because if God can break his covenantal promises to the Jews, then God can break his, break his covenantal promises to the church, and he won't break them to either party. And so the first error that can cause a well-meaning, Bible-studying Christian to collapse the rapture return with the second coming and make them somehow one is they mix up the church and Israel. They say it's equal. They say Israel's the church or the church is Israel. They're different. The second error that can make um, one confuse these two returns is not factoring in progressive revelation. The Bible is a revelation. And so here's how it works. Progressive revelation is if God raises a topic in Genesis... And then he raises the topic at the first part of the New Testament. We know more about that topic 
by the time of the first part of the New Testament than we knew about what God said in Genesis. What God said in Genesis is introductory. It's important. But then when you see more on that topic at the beginning of the book of Matthew, for instance, you know more about that topic than you did when you just had Genesis. And then at the end of the New Testament in Revelation, if the same topic is taught, then you know what God wants you to know. Genesis was foundational, Matthew was foundational, but Revelation is the last word in the progression of God's revelation. And when you fail to see a progressive nature to God's revelation, then you can get mixed up. You can mix up the the rapture with the second coming. If you don't understand the Bible to be a progressive revelation, that it is. The third error that can mix you up is the error of making the literal figurative. Making the literal of the Bible figurative. Specifically, making the predictive prophecies of the Bible that are meant to be taken literally, making them figurative. That's allegory. That's symbolism. That doesn't mean that. It means this and so forth and so on. The Bible is a revelation, not a concealment. So God does have allegory in his word, but not much. You know what I say. I'm a broken record. The way I interpret the Bible and encourage you to is this. If the plain sense of the Bible makes good sense, don't seek other sense or you're going to be left with nonsense. That's what I believe. So let me give you an example how the error of making the literal figurative can mess you up. In Revelation chapters 20, uh, chapter 20, through 1 through 7, do you know how many times the number 1,000 years is mentioned? Just in Revelation 21 to verse 7, six times. But my friends who are born again, that take the Bible figuratively, say there won't be a thousand-year future kingdom. The only kingdom you can expect is in your heart. And a thousand years is just a, a number that symbolizes completion. Pardon? Why would God repeat a thousand years six times in seven verses of Revelation 20? Because it's a thousand years. God is going to establish Jesus' kingdom for a thousand years. Not a thousand in one years, not 999, a thousand. Six times in Revelation 1 through 7. But you see, when you do that, when you, when you don't take the prophecies of the Bible literally, when they should be taken literally, and you make them figurative, then you go from that, a thousand-year kingdom promise, to Jesus is only going to reign on the throne of my heart. I'm sorry, your throne is not big enough for that. He's going to reign on the throne of the universe. So let's focus in in closing some of the more specific concrete details of the second coming return of the Lord, not the rapture. Go with me to Revelation chapter 19, would you? Revelation chapter 19 is the principal Bible New Testament chapter on the events of the second coming of our Savior. Revelation 19, I'm going to read verses, pause and comment on verses, and we'll get through several verses here in Revelation chapter 19. Let's start at the beginning at verse 1. So this action has occurred that at the conclusion of the seven years of tribulation, and Revelation 19 is going to tell us what it's going to look like when the Lord Jesus comes a second time, a second coming. Verses 1 through 2 to begin with. And after these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. It's saying that when Jesus comes back to end the tribulation, those who trusted him as Savior in the tribulation and were beheaded, he's going to avenge their blood. The first time Jesus came at Christmas, he was the lamb for sinners slain. The second time he's going to come at the second coming, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and no one will mess with him. And so the harlot being referred to in these two verses is the Antichrist tribulation time kingdom, an evil kingdom that the scriptures tell us would have three aspects. Antichrist kingdom would have these three aspects in the tribulation, politics, economics, and false religion. But when Jesus comes at his second coming, Christ will judge all of that false and evil kingdom of Antichrist. He'll destroy it. He'll drain the swamp. Verses 3 to 10. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, that's you and me, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he, now that's an angel, and he said to me, that's John on Patmos, and he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I, that's John the writer, I fell at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so at the second coming event of the Lord Jesus, God will be greatly worshiped in heaven for two reasons. First, he has judged and avenged the evil and atrocities that were committed against the converts in the tribulation who died. Second, God will be greatly praised in heaven at this point because God will usher in a wonderful and a deepened love relationship with believers. So great worship in heaven at the second coming. Verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat Upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems, that's crowns. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At the second coming event, Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, will come down from heaven to earth on a horse to wage war against all of his opponents in battle, the battle we know as Armageddon. And Jesus Christ will decisively and immediately win the battle of Armageddon with his words alone. No nuclear weapons, no Scud missiles, no armies and armies and armies. With his word, the same word that flung the existence of the creation into being, every galaxy, every universe. When Jesus Christ spoke, they would come into existence. And when he speaks judgment at the battle of Armageddon, they'll all be killed. Amen. All will be killed by his words alone. And there will be casualties. And this should break our hearts as evangelists. There will be many casualties. There will be human casualties and there will be horse casualties. And the beast, the antichrist and the right hand person of the antichrist in the tribulation, the false prophet, will be thrown alive into the lake of fire forever. Those of you who have heard people say hell is annihilation, you cease to exist after you die, that is wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. We exist after we die and we go to one of two places. We either go to heaven because Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior before we died, or we go to hell, a real hell, not an annihilation. Verses 17 to 21. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a, a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God and in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, that's Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. With him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. In a group this size, there could be people, precious people for whom Christ has died You've been deferring and delaying and procrastinating about trusting Jesus to be your savior. You procrastinate long enough and the rapture of the church will leave you behind. And you'll go into the seven years of tribulation and you know the gospel. You've heard it while you were alive in the church age and you'll know the gospel and maybe, maybe you'll trust Christ late enough in the tribulation that you'll survive and go into the millennial kingdom. But maybe you won't even believe in Jesus with any of those events. And when the tribulation's over, 
you're surviving, you won't believe in Jesus, you're rebelling against him, Jesus Christ comes back and he'll slay you with the word of his mouth, no more chances. And you'll become bird food. Don't do that. Don't do that. And so with the second coming of Jesus and all the ways we are seeing it depicted in Scripture, the conditions will then be ready for King Jesus to set up his own rule of the world in a thousand-year kingdom. Now, I realize that this sermon is a bit like trying to get a drink of water from a fire hydrant. It's just coming at you, right? But let's just try to simplify it to review Revelation chapter 19 tells us some things about the second coming return of Christ. Number one, Jesus will be judging Antichrist's false and evil kingdom. Second, there'll be great worship in heaven at the second coming event. Third, the second coming event will ensue a war which Jesus wins by the word of his mouth, Armageddon. And at the second coming of Christ, both Antichrist and the false prophet will be put into the lake of fire forever. No parole. And fifth, at the second coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will set himself up to rule the world by force on David's literal throne in a reconstructed temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. By the way, you do know that there are rabbis right now in Israel that have all the building materials that the Old Testament prescribed. They've got them stored to build that temple. They're ready. They've got blueprints according to the Old Testament specs. And they have all the lumber, all of the precious metals, all that's necessary to rebuild the Jews' temple on the Temple Mount. They're ready. Jews who don't claim Jesus as Messiah are ready. Are you ready? Wake up. There's one more passage on the second coming which I want to show you. It's in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is very near to the end of the Old Testament, as you know. And in Zechariah chapter 14, we're going to see some details about what happens on earth just at the very end of the seven years of tribulation, just before the second coming return of Jesus, okay? Zechariah 14, let's start with verses 1 and 2, which read, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. This is a predictive prophecy that near the end of the tribulation, before the second coming of Jesus, Israel will be defeated by Antichrist and his forces. And the rebellious nations of earth that side with Antichrist, all those nations will surround the city of Jerusalem like birds of prey on a dead carcass in the road. And they'll be surrounding Jerusalem to get the financial spoils of the city that will be captured, so they think. God predicts that's going to happen. But the anger of the Lord, the righteous anger of the Lord, will be struck such that those surrounding na nations of the world army that want to get the plunder of Jerusalem will be defeated by God sending his son, Jesus, to earth. Verse 3, and then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and when he fights on a day of battle, that's the second coming Christ, the Armageddon where Jesus defeats everybody that's against him by the word of his mouth. Verse four, 
In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north, and the other half will move toward the south. Beth and I have stood at that site in Jerusalem, in the Kidron Valley. We were there with a tour group of pastors and wives. We stood there with an unbelieving Jewish guy. We prayed that he would be saved, and maybe he has been saved since we were there in 1998. I pray that he has. But this is what he said. We're standing on the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley at the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. This is what he said. This is the, this is the Mount of Olives. He said, this is where uh, some people say a lot's going to happen, and other people say nothing's going to happen. The people who don't believe in a literal kingdom as Christians believe nothing's happening there. Something's, but he says the, the, the Radisson Hotel was going to build a five-star hotel right on this site, but they did a seismological study, and there's a huge rift under the Earth's crust. <laughs> I looked at Beth and said, yeah, there is. Because one day when Jesus comes back to that Mount of Olives and his feet touch that Mount of Olives, he will have the power that the earth will shake so hard that that rift underneath the earth's surface, how deep I don't know, will split the mountain. And one half of the mountain will go north and the other half of the mountain will go south and a wide entrance will be given to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he will walk through that tunnel. And the eastern gate of Jerusalem, the ancient eastern gate of Jerusalem that is 200 feet below the current ground level has not been opened for anybody to go through it for centuries. When Jesus comes down to the Mount of Olives and the earth shakes and that rift in the mountain spreads, and that's going to open the eastern gate that right now is 200 feet below the surface. And Jesus is going to walk through that eastern gate, ascend the hill to the Temple Mount, and sit on David's throne and rule the earth with a rod of iron. Nobody will mess with him. Say, Pastor, does anywhere else predict that? Mm -hmm. Matthew 24, excuse me, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. That's the ancient eastern gate of Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The Lord of our church. He is the king of glory. The Lord of your salvation. He is the king of glory. And so watch this. At Christ's second coming, on the one hand, creation will be suddenly and dramatically transformed. I'm gonna read you a couple of verses about that. But also at the second coming event of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jewish human hearts which need repentance at the second coming event of Jesus will be radically changed. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verses two and three. Prediction of how Jewish hearts will be brought clean at the second coming of Christ through belief. Malachi 3, 2 and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Before these Jews will enter out of the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom, they're gonna be cleansed with alkaline, heavy-duty, professional-quality laundry soap. That's what Fuller's soap is. And these repentant Jews who will enter the millennium needing salvation, they will trust in Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, and they will be refined with the refiner's fire. They will be purified. All the dross of the liquefied heat molten metal will be poured off. So when Jesus comes back, there'll be a radical heart transformation of Jewish believers in him. And I said earlier, when Jesus comes back, there will be a renaissance, a healing, a curing of sin damage on creation. Revelation, now let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8. Don't look these up ahead usually so you have a chance to turn to them in your Bibles. Romans 8, verse 22. This is what's happening now. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Why? Because Adam and Eve's sin brought a curse on creation. And right now, all of creation, every aspect of creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth. It won't always be that way. Because in Isaiah 65, there are many, many, many examples of this, but I'm just going to pick one. Isaiah chapter 65, talking about the future kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth, says the following, 65, 25, Isaiah. Are you ready? Looking forward to the kingdom after the second coming. Isaiah 65, 25. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they do no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. God says that predators will cease to be predators. God says that carnivores will cease to be carnivores. They'll eat plants. They'll be herbivores. God says that poisonous, in the other texts, poisonous snakes and vipers will no longer be poisonous a renaissance of creation. You could look at it this way. Then in Genesis 3, creation became an accomplice to the curse. But in Revelation chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus, creation will become an accomplice to a coronation. And so, in Zechariah 4, in verse 4, It says, excuse me, 14.4. Four. 4.4 four is a good verse too, but let's go with Zechariah 14.4. That's the one I want. Here we go. 
And on that day, that's the second coming day, and on that day, his, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that the half of the mountain will move north and half the mountain will move to the south. And so, do you remember the angels in Acts chapter one at the ascension event of Jesus? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Literally, bodily, visibly, personally, historically, actually, and slowly. Let's wrap it up. Merging Acts 1 with Revelation 19 very quickly. Number one, the second coming will happen the ways I just said, literally, bodily, visibly, personally, historically, actually, and slowly. Second, the second coming will be the time the Lord Jesus Christ judges Antichrist's false future evil kingdom. Number three, the second coming will trigger great worship in heaven. Number four, the second coming will involve a war which Jesus wins. Number five, the second coming is the time when the Antichrist and the false prophet are put into the lake of fire forever. Number six, the second coming paves the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to set himself up to rule the world by force for a thousand years. And number seven, the second coming will be to the Mount of Olives and creation will cooperate with King Christ's coronation. Say, okay, pastor, it's a warm day. It's been a long sermon. I've tried to follow you. Um, What should I take from this? Does this make any difference tomorrow morning when I go to work or school? Does this make any difference? Yeah, it does. The first thing is you ought to be serious. You ought to be serious about studying the Bible, and you ought to be serious about the Bible teaching you accept on podcasts and the radio and television and so forth, and from this pulpit. Number two, be accurate about the two different returns of Jesus. They are not the same. Number three, be clear on Israel and the church being different. Number four, be concerned that in the future, rebels to Jesus will be casualties. Number five, be patient because the whole story isn't told yet. Jesus wins. And the whole story isn't told yet. Number six, be encouraged to know that God finishes whatever he starts. Your salvation, my salvation, creation, Human history, judging Satan, God finishes what he starts. And number seven, be sure, be sure whose side you are on. Do you know you're saved? The majority of us do, I know. Praise God. But if you don't know you're saved, would you phone me this week? Would you walk into the office and say, could we talk about it? Could I get this settled based on Scripture? Know what side you're on. If you're not on Jesus' side, you're on the wrong side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your son who is our savior. We are grateful, Lord, that Jesus not only came as the lamb for for sin slain, but he will come someday as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lord, I pray that our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors 
would hear the gospel from us and your spirit would draw them to Christ for salvation so they could be raptured out of here like we will be. Lord, give us a prayerful burden for the lost and an expectant hope in scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.